The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, what a week this has been. We started off uh, with whiz-bang on Sunday, and then a bunch of us went up to Dallas for the pre-trib rapture study group meeting, which was, uh, which was tremendous, just to give you a very brief report. Uh, Monday night was very interesting at the banquet. John Hagee, who's a pastor of an assembly, large Assembly of God church in San Antonio, spoke at the banquet and talked on the fact that we are in the Third World War. And we better wake up and uh, be aware of that. And it was a powerful, uh, powerful message. And then on Tuesday night, Waleed Shubat, who some of you may be familiar with, he's been on CNN, on the Glenn Beck Show, on Fox News, interviewed on a lot of other news channels. He's a convicted uh, Palestinian terrorist who uh, realized that Jesus Christ was his Savior and believed on him. And he's been a believer for about the last 13 years, lives now in the United States, and goes around speaking. He spoke on Tuesday night. Afterwards, I got to have him and Randy Price up into the room, and I was like a fly on the wall listening to them talk about archaeology and different things in Israel, which was a lot of fun. And we had a tremendous conference, learned some interesting things. And if you want to hear about it, uh, you can talk to, let me see, who all, who are Betty and uh, Dick Munson were there, and Lisa and a couple others, so just talk to them about what they thought about the conference. And tonight we have a special event because um, we have several pastors in the house. And normally, if I'd known there were going to be so many of you guys here, I'd have just planned on each, giving each of you ten minutes, and I'd have just rested tonight. This is a rugged week with this Lagos conference this afternoon, but I wasn't smart enough to ask but only three of you to say something tonight. And we're going to open with a word of prayer that I'm going to ask uh, three of these pastors to come up. We have these men on our prayer list or churches or ministries on our prayer list. God has given gifted men to the church for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry, and we need to always honor these men that God has gifted, men who have given their lives to the study of the Word and leading the church, pastoring the church. And so I thought it would be good, uh, just like we did last year at the end of the Chafer Conference, to have three of these men come up and just give you a little brief snippet of their ministry, something about their churches. And so you get to put a face uh, with the name and understand and see who they are and how God's working in their ministry. So we'll have them come up in alphabetical order. We've got Bob Bolander first, and then Dan Ingram, and then the youngest for last, Jeremy Thomas, who's pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, which we normally do to make sure we're in fellowship, uh, filled with the Spirit, ready to study the Word you need to use 1 John 1.9 to make sure you're in fellowship, it's your opportunity to do so, and I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can come together tonight to be refreshed by the study of your word, 
and also to hear from these men and how you are working in their lives and in their ministries, that there are faithful men throughout this country teaching your word, passing it on to the next generation, training believers, leading them towards spiritual maturity. Father, we also thank you for the conference earlier this week in Dallas for the tremendous work that uh, Dr. Ice and LaHaye and Heinsen are doing with the pre-trib study group and the ch- great challenge that we heard there in light of what is going on in our world today. Father, we pray that tonight as we are challenged also by your word, and encouraged by your word, that we would be responsive to the doctrine that is there. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Bolander. The real blessing, though, and my thankfulness for Robbie and other pastors through the years, I grew up in under doctrinal teaching. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Uh, my pastors were Ken Jensen and John Eichmann. We hosted uh, Pastor Theme once a year. Every time he came to Washington State, our church was the host church. And so I heard Pastor Theme one week every year, every year of my life practically until headed off to the Army at that point. So in any event, I appreciate your welcome, and, uh, and thank you, Robbie, very much. How long have you been in Austin? Uh, Eleven years as pastor and four before that as a student. Great, great. Okay. Daniel. Don't go over 50 minutes. (laughs) Don't step on my cord. Bob was supposed to be up here for about 15 minutes, and I was supposed to <laughs> listen to him talk, and then I was supposed to know what I'm supposed to say. You know, just kind of change the name of the church and the name of the pastor, and you just say the same thing. But that didn't work. However, what I will say is that uh, I learned from another pastor who said that uh, when you have, uh, you know, something, you know, some time to fill, or you'd like to have somebody speak for you, you don't ever ask a pastor to make some, a few brief remarks because no pastor's ever made brief remarks. That person was actually uh, the uh, pastor that came down to retire me from the United States Marine Corps, and it was uh, Robbie Dean came down from... <laughs> pastor Robbie Dean came down in, uh, in January of 2000 when I retired from the Marine Corps, and I asked him to come down and give the invocation and, uh, well, the invocation turned out to be the best part of the service. As he said, uh, that's when he used that remark, that it's never been a pastor that's ever made brief remarks. So, But I am uh, Dan Ingram, uh, the pastor of the National Capital Bible Church. And as Dr. Mercer, who is now the new president of Capital Bible Seminary, when he first met me, I said uh, that I was the pastor of the National Capital Bible Church, and he thought for a second. He said, "National Capital." He said, "Would that be the National Capital Bible Church?" And I said, "Yes, it's the, it's the only one." So he says, "Well, you've got to stress the 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 Capital Bible Church, National Capital Bible Church." Um, to be to try to be brief, I wanted to tell you a little bit about how the church started because it is a new church. It was not an existing church, and we've been in existence now for a little over a year, probably in the vicinity of a year and three or four months, but started out as the thoughts of of those who were attending a video uh, Bible church 
from uh, that was watching videos of Pastor Theme in Quantico, and there were many military people, uh, families who have traveled through that area, been assigned up there, whether they were in the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, or the Marines, that have gone through that church, and you probably know many of them, uh, the Hagemeyers uh, that have got friends down here, and the Craigs, and others that have uh, that have been tapers for a long time, and about two, two and a half years ago, when Pastor Theme was no longer making, uh, you know, uh, making the, taking the trips up into the D.C. area, and also as his ministry began to change, they decided that they would like to form a church, and so they formed the the necessary committees and were looking for locations and. Uh, trying to figure out the finances and work out the constitutions and things like that. And as committees are wont to do, sometimes that takes forever. And finally, a couple of the, uh, the gentlemen des- decided that what we really needed to do is get a handle on this thing and just start the church and find a pastor and get started. And it was about that same time that I had finished uh, my education there at the uh, Capital Bible Seminary. And so the timing was, was just right. Um, for, for them to have me come and be a candidate. And uh, there was one other gentleman that was also uh, called to be a candidate, but uh, there were some difficulties with his uh, the family and the job, and he decided that he was not going to be able to do that. So we ended up with uh, one candidate, and I guess out of desperation, they said, well, he's the only one available, so we might as well ask him to be our pastor. And so that occurred back during the summer, uh, uh, the summer of 2005, and um, we had the uh, what we called the commissioning ceremony in September, and so it's been, like I said, a little over a year, and it's really been a marvelous thing. Uh, for any of you who have been, and I know you've done the same thing here, uh, when people truly desire to have a church, a church that's going to be grounded and founded in the Word of God, uh, like-minded people pull together and things have happened in a remarkable way. We continued to meet for maybe another month down in a, uh, it was a child care center in the Quantico area, but we needed <clears throat> another location and as we looked for uh, a church or a building, and I know that you all went through the same same situation here, we came upon a church it's called the Mount Vernon Baptist Church that had their congregation gotten smaller. They really weren't using their church um, as much as they had at one time, particularly a fairly large, what they called a fellowship hall. They were still using their auditorium for their uh, Sunday meetings and one on Wednesday night, but this rather large fellowship hall was not being used. And so we asked if we could lease that, and they were more than happy to have us, and we've developed a really a wonderful relationship with them. And it's just grown from there. So we see uh, a lot of people that we used to, to know down here in, in Houston as they either travel through there in a, on assignments or <clears throat> that have uh, settled there. Uh, just the other day, I don't think I had a chance to tell uh, Robbie, uh, Neil Robinson, and uh, who is a brigadier general in the Air Force, retired, and he's living in Fairfax 
We did, I didn't know that he was there. <clears throat> I, I actually have known him for several years, uh, not real well, but walked into the church, and uh, now they're attending. So it's it's amazing how the Lord brings uh, new people into the into the congregation. The other uh, blessing that we have is when I finished my last year when I got my Master of Theology from Capital Bible Seminary, they asked me if I would stay and teach classes. And I said yes, that would be a wonderful thing, a wonderful opportunity. And we've developed a, a, a very close relationship with the seminary. Uh, on the, uh, let's see, two weeks ago, December, this, no, just this past Saturday evening, uh, Capital Bible Seminary has their uh, Christmas Buffet every sort of a candlelight uh, single. Uh, they have the, their, their concert, the choir sings, and they have a, a banquet, and Dr. Mercer speaks. And we took 12 families from our church over the two to that uh, special occasion. And so we're developing a, a good, close relationship. We have three members of the congregation that are uh, students in the seminary. And hopefully next fall we'll have maybe double that that amount. And so as uh, you are, you know, have a close relationship with the seminary, we have one up there as well. And it's very close to us. And I'm constantly encouraging the uh, uh, the young men, middle-aged men, maybe even some of the older men, who are uh, interested in being trained and uh, having those tools to help them study the Word of God. Uh, that uh, it doesn't matter what their age is, if the if that's what they need to be doing in their lives, and they should be doing it, and they should simply get on with it. Uh, I like to remind them that you know Moses really started about the age 80, so you know don't worry about your age. So anyhow, that's a little bit of what's happening with uh, the National Capital Bible Church. Uh, if you're ever needing a vacation. Uh, Come to Washington, D.C., the National Mall's there, and also the National Capital Bible Church is there. And we'd just love to have you come see us. Thanks, Dan. He's doing a great job. When I went up for the ETS, had Tommy I speak and present a class on, uh, come on up, Jeremy, on uh, the new anti-Semitism, which was great. Now, this is Jeremy Thomas. Jeremy went to Israel with us last year. And he's a pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church. So, Thank you very much. Can I have a box? <laughs> <laughs> I've been avoiding this all day long because I knew if I saw what was really behind here, I'd want one. Go back with architectural plans for one for some of my men. Um, yes, my name is Jeremy Thomas. I'm the pastor at Fredericksburg Bible Church, and that's in the heart of the hill country in this great state of ours, Texas where uh, all the Bible doctrine is accumulating. <laughs> um, we uh, have a church that's been there for 27 years, and it, I'm the third pastor there, and obviously of the three that have been here tonight, I'm, I guess I'd say I'm probably the youngest. <laughs> and um, It's a close race, though, right? That's right. And uh, with my youth, what we're trying to do at Fredericksburg Bible Church is bring in uh, rock bands and, (laughs) uh, you know, things like that. I've got some applications actually right here. If you, we need a bass guitar player. (laughs) 
No, um, no, that's not our emphasis at all. Um, our emphasis is on the verse-by-verse exegetical uh, method of teaching the Word of God. And right now we're teaching through the books of Proverbs and Exodus and the book of Revelation. And uh, I teach two or three times a week. So I haven't made it up to six, and I'm going to have to call you about that because, I mean, that would be great. I'd love to be able to. I just don't have the capacity right now. Um, and uh, we also have, or I have a small group of men that I'm mentoring, about six men, and we do this every week. And I'm taking them through all the doctrines of the Bible and exploring uh, in more depth uh, some of the questions that we have about vital truth. Um, I'd like to take this time also to just thank you all so much for your prayers because uh, I certainly need them, and so do all the people there. We have a congregation of about 150 to 175, so it's really a good size, I think, for a Bible church. I mean, a large Bible church uh, compared to many today. Would that be accurate? I would think that is. And we have a wonderful uh, town, uh, Fredericksburg. If you, Many people would love to retire there. And uh, so I had people looking kind of funny at me when I got to tell them that two and a half years ago I was going to move to Fredericksburg. And uh, so if you'd ever like to come up, we're Fredericksburg Bible Church, and we're right off of Main Street. It's an old Lutheran church that was built in 1889. It's, it's been expanded because the Bab- First Baptist was there for a while, and so they added on to it. But uh, we have about 150 to 175 people, and they've been taught, uh, they've been taught well. Uh, they were started with a Dallas Seminary graduate, and he was there for seven years. And then the next pastor was there for 17 years, and uh, he's actually helping out with a church now in Horseshoe Bay after he retired, a Bible church there that's strong. So uh, hopefully I'm following in the tradition of giving them strong uh, Bible teaching. And we also have y'all and several of the, all the pastors, that Dan and Bob and others, um, that we pray for as well, Mike. Uh, Smith, wherever he is, there he is. We're praying for you. So um, hang in there because this is uh, a difficult world we live in, and you have a tremendous pastor teacher here to, to guide you on to all truth. So thank you very much for the opportunity, and hope you'll come visit. Thanks, Jeremy. Jeremy has an interesting testimony. He ran into a uh, very attractive woman when he was in college. And at that point, I need to get rid of that. I don't need that. At that point, I know I get probably get shocked or something. Okay, at that, at that, yeah, at that point when he he was not a believer, and his wife just I mean his current wife now, but at that time this young woman just kind of looked at him like he had three eyes or something and said, you know, here here's ten tapes. I want you to go listen to these tapes. And then maybe we can talk about going out. And her mother converted the framework pamphlets that Charlie Clough had done at Lubbock Bible Church to children's material up there in Lubbock. And so those were the first ten lessons in Charlie's framework series. And so as a result of that, Jeremy got saved. And now he's a pastor. So... You never know what giving somebody a tape will do. Might get them married. No. <laughs> That's right. You might get a wife. Now, you know it's always great to ha- to 
invite pastors to come in, in your pulpit and have them invite your congregation to join their church. So I appreciate that, guys. <laughs> and two other pastors that are here tonight that, you, that I just didn't want to use up all the time with these guys are John Hike. John, stand up. John Hike back there. See, isn't he a good dresser there? And uh, Mike Smith from Country Bible Church in Brenham. Everybody here knows Mike, I think. And they're here, and so that's great to have them with us as well. So, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Now, we are at this section getting into these verses, just coming off of that famous passage of tremendous difficulty, that warning passage, dealing with uh, those who... Uh, are have those who have fallen away, and the text says in verse six that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Then there was the illustration we read in verses seven and eight, dealing with two different types of soil. The first deals with the soil that that drinks in the rain and produces fruit, and that's a picture of believers who respond positively to the grace of God in providing the nourishment necessary for growth. That comes from primarily the Spirit of God using the Word of God in the life of the believer to produce fruit. Now, that illustration is important because the writer of Hebrews uses that to move on into his subject in the next section. So there's the contrast between the earth that responds to the nourishment and grows and produces positive fruit and receives blessing from God and that which rejects or misuses the grace of God and bears thorns and briars, and it is rejected and near to being cursed. And we saw that that's not a salvation rejection. That is that they lose rewards. That's the backdrop for this entire passage. But the thrust of this passage, even though it has seemed very negative up to this point, I want you to see, just remember how negative it's been. As the writer of Hebrews has entered into this, this section, this is the third section of the five major sections in the book of Hebrews. He started to develop the doctrine of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ in relationship to the royal high priesthood of Melchizedek. That Jesus Christ is not a high priest according to the order of the Aaronic priesthood, which is under the Mosaic law, but a higher priesthood that relates to all peoples, the Gentile priesthood of the royal king Melchizedek. And as he just begins to introduce that in uh, chapter 5, verse 6, he breaks off in verse 11 and just begins to really uh, castigate these people and to reprimand them for their spiritual dullness. And that word is picked up for their spiritual dullness is going to be picked up again in verse 12 in this next paragraph, which we're beginning tonight in verses 9 through 12. So he, he reminds him, he says, I, would have, I have much to say about this, but it's difficult to explain because you've become sluggish spiritually. You've become dull in your hearing. And then he says in verses 12 through 14 that by this time you should have been teachers. You should have the maturity, the knowledge to have pressed on to spiritual maturity. But once again, I have to go back to the basics of milk and start over again because you have regressed spiritually. And then there's the warning in the first part of chapter 6, that believers who regress spiritually jeopardize rewards, and you can even possibly reach a point of no return in your spiritual life where you end up being taken out under the sin unto death. 
But he says in a positive note in verse 9, and that's where we begin tonight. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. In what manner? Though we have just really faced you down. Though we have just confronted you and challenged you and reprimanded you for your spiritual sluggishness. Though I've just rebuked you for your lazy, sluggish, dull attitude towards Scripture. Nevertheless, I'm confident of better things for you. And that is the main thing that he is saying here. So there are uh, three sentences in this paragraph, and I just want to run through those so you get the idea of what he's talking about. First he says, But, beloved, we are confident of better things for you. This is a very positive note in the midst of this Uh, just following this warning passage in this exhortation section. Even though you have regressed and are dull, we expect and are confident that better things are going to happen, that you will recover. Why? For God is not unjust. And he goes to the character of God to support his rationale for his encouraging and positive statements here. God is not unjust to forget what has already taken place in your in your spiritual growth. And furthermore, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, and that you not become sluggish. That same word used back in verse 12, or excuse me, in verse 11, of being dull of hearing. That you not become, or continue to be dull of hearing, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, and it's that last phrase that we see that the thrust of this is to uh, encourage them to press forward so that they have an inheritance and receive rewards and blessings at the judgment seat of Christ. So the main idea of this first verse in verse 9 is to remind them that, yes, indeed, we have confidence that despite past failures, No matter what has happened in your spiritual life, no matter what sins you've committed, no matter how you have failed, you may go through a period of weeks, months, years, where you are just uh, spiritually sluggish, where you are cold even to the Word, where you're just living your life based on the sin nature. Nevertheless, no matter how bad you've sinned, no matter how far you've drifted off course from grace, no matter how far you've gotten away from the Lord, nevertheless... We have confidence that despite failure, there is recovery. God's grace always provides for recovery. God's grace is greater than any sin that we can ever commit. Now, the beginning of this verse is extremely important. And as I've been studying it for the last uh, weeks or so and thinking about it, especially the last few days, something really hit me about this today in light of some things that went on at pre-trib. And that's his first phrase. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. What a powerful word that is, that we are confident. It is the Greek word patho. It's a perfect passive indicative here. What's important to understand is that it is a perfect tense verb. Now, the grammar there is important because it helps us to understand the, the thrust of what he is saying. A perfect tense verb in the Greek indicates that, especially in a tensive perfect sense that this is, is that this emphasizes the present results 
of a completed past action. So the writer is saying, I am currently confident and have been confident as a result of some past action. Now that past action is his understanding of the grace of God and how the grace of God works in the life of the believer. That if the believer fails, no matter what it is, we have a promise of forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, 1 John 1, 9 is an important thing to understand because when we're out of fellowship, we cannot produce anything of eternal value. We're out of fellowship with God. We've breached that rapport. God, the Holy Spirit, isn't working positively in our life for growth. He is working in a negative sense to bring us back into recovery, into uh, fellowship with God to produce. We're walking by the flesh and not by the Spirit. There's that important contrast that we've studied in Galatians 5:16 down through down through verse 25. And before you can do anything positive is produced in our lives after we have sinned, there has to be this recovery. You confess first. Now, lately there have been people asking me, what's the relationship between repentance? And confession. And the word repentance emphasizes change. Repentance really comes after, if you want to break it down logically, it comes after confession. You admit your sins. Because if you repent before you confess, you're doing it when you're out of fellowship. You're doing it in the power of the flesh. You've got to get back in fellowship before it has any value. You don't confess, you don't repent and then confess. You confess and repentance may be years. I was thinking of an example that, um, let's say you're in a situation and this, this half, very common today. You have somebody who gets, uh, abused, maltreated, betrayed in a relationship. You can imagine, uh, I can imagine many different situations involving marriage where there's betrayal, where there's abuse. There may be emotional abuse, physical abuse, whatever it might be. And there is a horrible, horrible divorce situation. And one person is 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 more in the right and another person is much more in the wrong and has really produced the horrible situation, been very abusive, and very wrong. And when that when that marital split occurs, there are often on the part of one person very hurt feelings. I'm just just and there's that 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 tendency to anger, resentment, bitterness, revenge that just can dominate the soul and, and if if that abuse and all that treatment has gone on for years and has been truly horrible, then that person may struggle for for years with with bitterness, with every time they think of that that person they were married to, there's just this welling up of, of emotion. And yet in order to ever grow past that, what do you have to do? You gotta be in fellowship. Right? You can't, you can't deal with it in the power of the flesh. You've got to deal with it by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So that means you have to be back in fellowship. You can't wait and get back in fellowship. So you may, uh, you may not even at times be willing to admit that that is a, that that is really a sin. It feels good to be vindictive and to enjoy those thoughts. You know, we're all that way. Don't look at me like I just said something. <laughs> We all, we're all that way, and, and, and then we, but, but those thoughts don't dominate us 24/7. Not, not, not 60 seconds out of every, 60 seconds out of every minute, 
in 60 minutes out of every hour and 24 hours out of every day. There are times when we get distracted and you're watching the evening news and you get mad at some politician. No, I'm just kidding. And... Uh, but you get distracted because, you know, your favorite football team won and there's, there's happiness there and you confess some other sin. Yes, you're forgiven of all sins. That's what 1 John 1 9 says. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, those we mentioned, and forgive us for all unrighteousness. Now, five minutes later, when you think of that dirty SOB, that's the son of a Belial, you think of them, then you're out of fellowship again. But you don't have to repent of that. It may take years, in in many cases, for us to grow through and grow out of and pass certain sins that are trends, comfortable trends of our sin nature. And we all have comfortable, you know, the, the comfort zone of our sin nature is a dangerous place to live, but we all do that more often than we're we're willing to admit. But there is always recovery, but we have to keep our eye on that forward momentum that we have to grow through all this even though at times it may take us years to recognize that that certain mental attitude sins that we have are really aren't healthy and we have to move move past them and if we have to come to a point of fully recognizing their sinfulness and their wrong before we can ever confess any sin then uh, we're in trouble because you never get back into that position uh, where you can walk with the Spirit again and the Spirit can begin to deal with those things. But here we have a statement that we have confidence, the writer says. We can be sure, we can have confidence that there is recovery and he has confidence that even though this congregation has failed miserably, that he's confident of better things for them. Now this word confidence is very important. Because we can have confidence in the right thing, and we can have confidence in the wrong thing. This word confident is the Greek word that patho, which indicates uh, the attainment of certainty. Now, certainty is one of the things, either you're sure or you're not sure. You know, either you're, you're, it's sort of like being pregnant, you know, you're not just a little bit pregnant. You're either sure or you're not sure. Now, the pr- trouble with, when, with living in a postmodern era is people want to think that you can be, well, I'm a little bit sure. I'm 80% sure. I'm 50% sure. I'm 30% sure. Because you, you just don't have a, a basis of knowledge or what philosophers call epistemology for being absolutely sure of anything. And yet that's the terminology here that we can attain certainty. We can be convinced. We can be persuaded that something is a hundred percent true because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, we walk by what? Faith and not by sight. And the trouble with most people is, is they think that certainty only relates to sight. In other words, if we put it into epistemological terms, that you can only have certainty when you are certain on the basis of empiricism or rationalism, but faith, well, that's kind of a leap of faith. It's subjective, and so there's not any any real certainty there. But the Bible says there's people who have certainty in the wrong thing. And in Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus tells a parable to some of the people around him who trusted, as that word patho, who trusted they had confidence in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And this is the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, where the Pharisee was the one who stood and he prayed 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a Democrat. No, uh, I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Emphasis on what he did. Emphasis on his own actions as the source, source of righteousness. In contrast, there's the tax collector who just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus goes on to make the point that the man who was humble, the tax collector, who recognized that he had no standing whatsoever before God on the basis of what he had done, was the one who was the justified one, and he recognized grace. And so we see that there are those who are persuaded of the wrong thing. So you can believe or trust or be confident of the wrong thing. In fact, patho isn't a synonym for trust, even though it is the uh, it is etymologically related to the word pistis, which is the word for faith. Now we have a positive use of this confidence in Romans 8:38 and 39. For I am persuaded, I am confident, I am certain that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul is saying that he's confident and we can be confident too. Now, how confident on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident is Paul? 10. He is absolutely confident. He has no Shadow of a doubt that he has perfect standing before God. It's not 80% or 60% or 40%. And the, the expectation from this verse is that we can be just as certain and just as confident of our salvation. So the bottom line here is that the Bible teaches that we can have confidence and have the certain knowledge of the truth. And how, why is that? Again, as I stress again, over and over, is because our confidence is in the revelation of God. It comes back to that theory of knowledge. We can know truth because the God who is truth has communicated to us. The omniscient God who knows everything, who knows everything that will be, everything that could be, has communicated to us. Not only that, but we have a, uh, an understanding that this God created us And he designed us in such a way that despite the chaos from sin, we could still hear what he said. He could still communicate to fallen man. And, of course, in the church age for believers, we have the addition of God the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand fully the word of God. Because aside from the gospel, the natural man can't understand anything. And he only understands the gospel because God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to them. But God gives us the Holy Spirit who makes the Word of God clear to us, makes it perspicuous to us, so that we can truly know what the Word of God says. Now, this last week, when we were up at pre-trib, one of the papers that was given, an excellent presentation, was by Dr. Bob Wilkin, who's the president of the Grace Evangelical Society. And he delivered an eye-opening paper entitled Postmodernism and Its Impact Upon Theological Education. Now, he sort of left no institution unturned. He dealt with a number of uh, 
seminaries and Bible colleges around the country and how members of their faculty, not everybody on their faculty, the whole institution hasn't gone over to postmodernism, but how certain members of their faculty are allowed to make some extremely uh, dubious statements. And he named names and he gave examples. And some of these included some uh, recent examples from Dallas Theological Seminary. And I just thought I would uh, share that with you so that you could uh, be warmed and spiritually encouraged by uh, where our seminaries and schools are going. Recently, Dallas Theological Seminary had a, had a conference on postmodernism and they invited as one of the speakers a man by the name of Brian McLaren. Now, most of you probably never heard of him, but he's one of the major influences in the emerging church movement. Now, most of you probably never heard of that either, but that's one of these kind of movements where everybody sits around and, you know, they instead of having pews or chairs, they just bring in a bunch of sofas and they all share with each other about how warm, fuzzy, all the warm fuzzies they have from God. And so the emerging church movement is just really going, uh, that, that's the, that's the, the seeker sensitive, uh, purpose-driven, you know, next step, and it's extremely, uh, extremely scary. And anyway, McLaren was listed recently by Time Magazine, according to Wilkin, as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America today. And Wilkin writes, quote, That fact, combined with the fact that DTS wanted him to speak there, should grab all our attention. What he has to say is important, even if it is heretical. Bob's words, I agree, but Bob's words. I use that term intentionally. He says, during a question and answer session, McLaren was asked if he knew anything for sure. Now, remember, I just said the Apostle Paul says you can know some things for sure. Scripture is certain about that. But initially, McLaren said he did know some things for sure, such as knowing he had experienced God's love. But then he said, I can have doubts about anything if it's late enough at night. Certainly, I think, or certainty, he says, I think, is overrated in the modern world. Of course, if you, my question is, in the modern world, there is no certainty. Nobody believes in certainty. So how, I don't, it's not rated at all. But anyway, Wilkin goes on to comment, that about this statement, that's the heart of postmodernism. He says certainty is overrated in the modern world. What is not overrated in the modern world is doubt. Everybody needs to have a healthy amount of skepticism. Well, he moved on from Brian McLaren, who's not a DTS student or faculty member, but was invited to speak at the conference to talk about Daryl Bach. Uh, Dr. Daryl Bach is a distinct, the distinguished uh, professor or research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Seminary. Uh, he's a Houston boy. We may not want to claim him. Uh, I've known uh, Daryl since about 1975, I believe, when he was first starting at Dallas Seminary and he graduated from Rice, Rice University. Uh, he made some statements. Uh, he was sitting next to McLaren during the conference and this is what Bach said right after, according to uh, uh, Wilkin. Wilkin listened to the tapes of all the conference, and he says, Bach's remarks are equally amazing. 
He said the following immediately after McLaren ended his answer. This is Bach speaking. Well, I think when you're discussing foundationalism, foundationalism is the idea of having a sure and certain foundation to our doctrine. He said it's clear that the concept of certainty has to also do with provability. Can I prove that something has taken place? Can I prove beyond any reasonable doubt? Can I prove it? Well, see, most of us who went through Dallas years ago uh, understood that there was evidence of proof for Scripture, that the Bible didn't uh, present faith as a leap into subjectivity, but that there were sure and certain proofs. Gee, I think that comes out of Acts 1 from the lips of Jesus, that he gave certain proofs, evidence of his resurrection to, to the disciples. So uh, Bach goes on and he says, and to give an illustration, he talks about the fact that we have to talk about the relationship between conviction, certainty, and faith. And then he says, quote, I'm reminded of a situation where I was debating Marcus Borg. For those of you who don't know, he's one of those big bad liberals who are part of the Jesus Seminar who doubt that 95% of the Gospels had anything to do with what actually happened. So he's debating Marcus Borg, and Borg got up and began his debate by saying, well, I don't think this debate is a real debate because Daryl is going to defend the position that he holds to, which is that the Bible is inerrant. And therefore, as a result, the resurrection must happen. Talking about the the, the uh, uh, proof for the resurrection of Christ. Well, Bach responded by saying, well, I thought that was an interesting way to begin a debate. And I got up and said, quote, these are uh, Daryl uh, Bach's words. He says, I got up and said, quote, I think what tonight is about is not whether I can prove the resurrection takes place as a matter of absolute certainty, but whether or not the case for believing in the resurrection as a physical act has greater plausibility than the case that it's a metaphor. And there's a distinction between what I believe and why I believe it and how strongly I hold to it and what I can actually show. This is the research professor of New Testament Dallas Theological Seminary. What he's saying is that all we can get is out of the Bible is greater plausibility. Why, I, why do you believe the Bible instead of Islam? Well, it's a little more plausible. <laughs> when you die and you're at the, entering heaven and Jesus says, why should I let you enter my heaven? He says, well, you know, I thought you had a little more plausible explanation of things. Is that what we're talking about? See, postmodernism, now not every professor at Dallas Seminary holds to positions like, I don't want to make that clear, there's some good, good men there, but there was no one there like that 30 years ago. And they would not have been allowed to come back on the campus if they ever made a statement like that 30 years ago. And now they are promoted to positions of, of, of research professor. Well, then um, uh, Bob went on to say that there's uh, another example from two recent Dallas Seminary graduates who have a ministry called Reclaiming the Mind Ministry. He refers to a graduate named Michael Patton who graduated in 2001 and Rome Dick who graduated in 2004 who are president and executive director respectively of this Internet-based teaching ministry. And he says they have an Internet radio ministry called Theology Unplugged. And in one of their Internet broadcasts, they featured a discussion between the two of them 
and the radio talk show host, a man named Greg Cromarty, who himself is conversant on postmodern thought. So Patton started off, and he asked the other two how sure they were on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 represents uh, absolute certainty. Are you sure you exist? Yeah, I'm reasonably sure I exist. That would be a 10. And if you're sure that the that the uh, that it's going to rain tomorrow, well, you know that may be somewhere down around a one. Remember, we're in Houston, so he asked them on a scale of one to ten, how sure are you of God's existence? Well, Cromarty said that he'd put God's existence on a scale somewhere between five and eight on a scale of one to ten. And Dick Rome Dick, the DTS graduate, Cromarty's not a DTS graduate. Rome Dick, the DTS graduate, puts God's existence at 7 on a scale of 1 to 10. How sure are you that God exists? In other words, would you give your life? I've got a 45 pointed between your eyes. Are you going to give your life for the existence of God on a scale of 1 to 10? How sure are you? Well, maybe a 7. Then they discuss how sure they are that Jesus will return at the rapture. And Cromarty quipped... Well, quote, that's a nice story. Now, if you're in touch with postmodern thought, story's the key word. Everything's a story. It's all a, all a, all a narrative. So well, it's a nice story. Then he, he said he'd rate the pre-trib rapture as a 2 on a scale of 1 to 10. Uh, Dick, the DTS graduate, doesn't give a number but suggests that the answer to that question might even be a negative number. Now, Wilkin goes on to note, and I quote him, he says, The DTS students who work and have worked for him, and he always has two or three uh, interns working with him, uh, estimate that a huge percentage, over 80% of the students in their classes, buy the postmodern uncertainty that they are being taught in class. That would mean eight or nine out of ten DTS graduates will be like Patton and Cromarty and will be going out to stand in pulpits and give people a plausible view of how God can solve your problems or how you could be saved. And this is the cream of the crop today. Now, the Bible says that there is certainty. And, in fact, the writer of Hebrews here is talking about a certainty... It doesn't relate to salvation, that doesn't relate to the empty tomb, that doesn't relate to the existence of God, but it's something that a lot of Christians wouldn't be that certain about, and that is that he is confident that even though you have messed up your life to the maximum because you've been living on carnality and you've committed all kinds of egregious sins, he says, I have the same confidence of my eternal security that I have that better things are going to come out of you because you're going to turn things around and get right with the Lord again. That's what he's talking about. So he has certainty that if we completely blow it into Christian life, no matter how badly you have failed, whatever sins you commit, God's grace is great enough to give you recovery. So we have to remember that as long as we're still alive, God has a plan for your life, and recovery may be long, slow, and hard, and you might have to go through a series of divine discipline just like David did 
Nevertheless, God is going to provide a way for you to recover because no sin is too great for the grace of God. There was no sin that didn't make it into God's plan when in his omniscience he was aware of every sin in human history and imputed every sin in human history to Jesus Christ on the cross. He didn't wake up the day after and go, oops, I forgot one. Uh Uh-oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. John Hyde's going to do this, and I slipped. (laughs) That's not covered. He's not going to do that. Every one of them made made it to the cross, so no sin was forgotten. So every sin is covered by the grace of God. And no sin is too great for God to forgive because every sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. No sin was left out. No sin uncovered. Every sin was paid for. Therefore, that's not an issue. The issue is, are you willing to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, admit that what you did was a sin, so that by confession you can have forgiveness, recovery, and move forward. So there's no sin too great for recovery. The only thing that holds us back is that our volition gets uh, too locked in negative, and we aren't willing to confess the sin and move forward. The point that we have to remember in the context of this passage is the serious warning just given, and that is that that from a human perspective, in terms of uh, normal recovery, there can be a point where, apart from the grace of God, there's no recovery. I, I pointed that out last time, that again and again in the book of Hebrews, there's this emphasis on encouraging one another, strengthening one another, but sometimes people just get locked into negative and there's nothing you or I can say or do other than prayer to to encourage their recovery. It's up to the grace of God and His divine discipline. So there is certainly, certainly assurance and we can be 100% sure and certain of God's provision. Now, a lot of people today, frankly, just don't have a lot of confidence in their assurance of salvation. In fact, I was talking with uh, uh, one pastor at the conference, older pastor, Dr. Joe Chambers. He would not mind me mentioning his name. Pastor of a large, and he would say, classic Pentecostal church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Joe's just a great guy to put up with all of us. And he's been coming to the pre-trib rapture study group since the first year. And the first year, he roomed with three five-point Calvinists. (laughs) And he is a classic Arminian. And he does not believe in eternal security at all. We always give him a hard time about it, and he's very good-natured about it. But... He does not believe that there is such a thing as, as eternal security. And he even cornered me one day this, this, this week wanting to talk to me about some, the warning passages in Hebrews chapter 10. But he just have a, has a tough time with it. Now, we've gone through the doctrine of eternal security here many times, so I don't want to cover that in depth. But I do want to just touch on a couple of passages. We can be certain of our salvation. We can know that we're saved. That's what we have in 1 John 5.13, that the Bible tells us that we can know that we're saved, not have an 80% certainty or a 60% certainty, or be, you know, if you wake up and it's a good day, you're sure, but if you wake up and it's not a good day, that, well, you know, maybe not. Uh, 1 John 5.13, John says, These things 
I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, not that you may have a plausible case for eternal life, but that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God so we can know that we're saved. Another line of argument for eternal security is based on the power of God. Because God is omnipotent. He is able to do that which He intends to do. Jude 1.24 says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. God is able to make you stand in His presence and to keep us. He is able to keep us. And we connect this with passages such as John 10.28 and 29, where Jesus says, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. He doesn't say, and they might not perish. See, they have eternal life, which means it's not going to be lost. I give eternal life to them, they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. These are dogmatic statements of absolute certainty. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you're held in Jesus' hand, and then the Father's got His hands wrapped around Jesus' hands, and who do you think can come along and pry those open? It can't happen. So we have absolute certainty of our salvation because of the power of God, and then third, because of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He puts His brand on us. And I always like to think about the sealing of the Spirit in terms of good old cattle branding. And if you're not familiar with cattle branding, back in the back in the Wild West days, uh, they used to have cattle rustlers who would take a cinch ring off of a saddle, and that's that's a round ring, and they would take that and they would hold it with a pair of pliers in the fire, heat it up, and then they would use that to change a brand. And if you're looking at the skin of that cattle from the outside, it looks like that brand has been changed, and that brand signified ownership. So instead of being owned by one person, it now looked like that cow was owned by another person. And that cow might go the rest of his life with that brand on like that because the only way you could tell that the brand had been changed was to slaughter the calf, cut the hide off, and then looking at it from the reverse side, you could see that the brand brand had been changed. A lot of Christians are that way. When they get saved, they get branded by the Holy Spirit, and they're in the family of God and owned by God. But because of carnality, uh, they let Satan come along and try to counterfeit or change the brand. And it's not going to be until they die that you're going to see what the, what the real brand is. And it's the brand of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they haven't lost their salvation. They have eternal security and assurance of their salvation. Now, the writer of Hebrews here is confident of better things. Now, what are those better things? Let's just go back and finish up. We're about out of time, so I'll just finish here. Let's get a corrected translation of the verse. It's but beloved. So there's an emphasis there with this term of endearment at the very beginning of the verse, but beloved concerning you, you who are dull of hearing, sluggards whom I've been uh, reprimanding for the last uh, eight or ten verses, we are convinced of better things that are related to your salvation. So what are these better things that are related to our salvation? 
Well, we're not talking about salvation in terms of classic justification or coming to Christ or gaining eternal life at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Remember, we've seen that the word in in uh, Hebrews for salvation, soteria, has to do with that completed process of salvation, not phase one justification when we're saved from the from the penalty of sin, not phase two sanctification when we're saved from the a presence of sin, but phase three salvation, glorification, when we're saved from the presence of sin. And that's what he's talking about is the better things that are related to that salvation at the end of phase three. So those better things that accompany that salvation, that glorification, has to do with rewards and inheritance, which is where he heads in verse in verse 12, that through faith and patience we inherit the promises. So we'll come back next time and continue to look at the rest of verse 9 and then the dynamics of spiritual work and grace and service in verse 10 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be refreshed and encouraged by your word. We thank you for the testimony of these pastors, the way you're using them, and the remarkable ways in which you use so many different men to communicate uh, the truth of your word. Father, we pray that we might not be complacent about your word or just simply think that it's a just a plausible story, but that it is indeed the absolute truth that Jesus Christ said would make us free indeed. Now, Father, we pray that you'd watch over us as we go home this evening, keep us safe on the road, and make us mindful of the things the Holy Spirit has taught us this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.